Spoken podcast listeners, I have a treat for you today. I know you love a good, empowering, and inspiring story. And I have a woman here that is going to just blow your mind like she did mine. Um, just such a powerful story. And I'm going to share a little background about how we met. She attended one of my entrepreneur experience events. She loved the beautiful space that we were in. And she thought this could be a perfect place for me to launch my new brand, a ready-made martini brand. I can't wait to deep dive into this brand, how it came to fruition. Uh, but Alexa, we're going to talk about today being Juneteenth, a yes. very important day, now in a federal holiday, right. uh, which I think is just so exceptional. And then we, it's National Martini Day. I just found this mm-hmm. out like 20 minutes ago. And I go, are you kidding me? Talk about serendipity time. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. All I right. feel every day should be a National Martini Day, but you know, we'll take one day out of the year. <laughs> I love that. Tell us what Juneteenth means to you. You know, when you think about the actual uh, reason for celebration, and it, we are commemorating when the last slaves in Texas found out they were free, um, it's just almost overwhelming. It's very consuming when you think about um, how far we've come as a country and where we're going. And I just feel a lot of gratitude that um, us as a society are recognizing that uh, there's work to be done. And, you know, this is a very special first step. Um, It pains me to know you know, that there is rhetoric out there that don't understand the necessity for commemoration. But um, like with everything, there are more, there's more good than bad. And so just being able to even take up a fraction of this space is just amazing. It it means a lot to answer your question. Absolutely. And listeners know top core values of mine are equity, equality, inclusion, and that's why I'm so grateful to share your story. I think you embody all of those. And your story will give so many more people permission to go after their dreams and have the courage to do so and also formulate an exceptional fan base around them, like me to you, (laughs) and be able to really amplify those messages. So I am curious, um, tell us a little bit about childhood. Where did you grow up? What was the environment like? And what is your earliest memory of prejudice or racism? Sure. Uh, So I, fun fact, I was actually uh, born and raised in London. Um, So I'm a a dual citizen, if you will. Um, My parents are are both Nigerian. So I am an immigrant uh, immigrant to this uh, country, to both countries, if you will. Um, And, you know, growing up in Europe was just a fantastic childhood in so many ways. I think that um, the culture um, was far ahead of its time. You know, um, I had friends from all walks of life. Uh, so I had a really close friend that was Jamaican and Pakistani. And so just growing up in that environment and being, uh, being, you know, having a front row seat to all those uh, cultural mo- moments really has shaped who I am um, to this day. And, you know, just being able to get lost in the city. We grew up in a time where you just get on the train and, you know, go to school and just, um, you know, uh, I never felt a pressure 
interestingly enough, to assimilate just because it was such a huge melting pot. Um, however, you know, there there is always a underbelly of rumblings when it comes to prejudice, right? Like you might see something and you can't quite put your finger on it, um, but then you kind of go back and think, oh, okay, yeah, that's what it was. And, you know, I unfortunately, and maybe fortunately, um, my earliest memories of prejudice have been in adulthood um, and just really being able to uh, crystallize what it is I'm going through and what those microaggressions look like. Um, I would say, luckily enough, there was nothing that was very, you know, blunt force trauma-esque about my childhood. Um, uh, when it when it comes to, you know, prejudice, it was mainly the difference in cultures within the minority culture, interestingly enough. But then when I look at it with, through a 2020 lens, it's because there was, uh, you know, that segregated experience. Um, but, you know, having my children um, grow up in a time now that we are now really having those conversations early on and um, setting the expectations, but still even just seeing them in their innocence um, is really just such a blessing. But I, I mean, I could definitely tell you about my uh, experience with prejudices in, in adulthood. It comes from, you know, from when I was a server to when I was more in the corporate world uh, to, you know, my own personal friend group, you know, people that, you know, would say things out of, um, a, you know, I feel like ignorance is such a charged word because there it needs to be a lot more context. It's like, it's like, are you, are you ignorant to it or are you just indifferent? Um, and so, yeah, those experiences have been more recent, unfortunately, but childhood was fun. Um, I, I have four older brothers, um, the youngest being eight years older than me. So it was it was fun, but it was also kind of lonely. I, I felt like an only child a lot of the time. Uh, but Europe was such a great experience. And right now I'm in the uh, process of getting my uh, kids uh, British passports because they they're able to get them. And that's definitely something I wanted to experience as well. So amazing. In your eyes, how can we combat social injustice? Ooh. I think that the only true way to do that is to diversify the people that are close to you. I think that it's quite amazing um, how you can be in such a such mixed company, but still exist in such a silo. Um, and I don't think that you will be able to really understand that, hey, we are just people, we have the same worries, we have the same, you know, excitements, uh, we are just all living our lives trying to make it through, right? And I don't think that you really understand that unless you are, you know, knee deep in connectivity with people in your community. That really is just the way forward. Um, you know, I'm not saying go out and find, you know, your, your token friend. You know, but I'm saying actually get uh, true connections, you know, with everyone in your community. Try new foods. Um, just just realize that, you know, not being able to have a different perspective, tr a true different perspective um, 
is actually is is kind of a a sad way to live because just uh, being um, privy to just all the wonderful um, things that you can learn from other people is such a blessing. Um, So I feel like individuals sell themselves short when they just exist in um, what they've always known, if you will. We do live in an individualistic society and that is uh, it empowers people to stay in a silo and you know, I, I think that is one of the most important uh, beliefs to dismantle is just how important empathy really is and truly listening and seeking to understand natural disaster relief work was my gateway to truly understanding um, what it feels like to try and put yourself in someone else's shoes when everything mm-hmm. is lost and specifically mm-hmm. in um, underserved areas. That's where we serve. And it right. allows me to be able to listen to stories and bridge connection through empathy and compassion. And when you see that and you become an ally in that way, suddenly, like you said, it's not a surface intention. It is truly, I believe, one of the greatest gifts in our lives to be it able really, to. It really, really is. And, you know, you know, when you talk about the individualistic community, it's just so ironic. Um, when you think about the bedrock, the foundation of what this country should be built on and what we we should be believing, right? Um, it, it it really it, it saddens you a little bit to to know that we still have such a long way to go, but it, it definitely is empowering to know that there are a lot more foot soldiers on that journey. So, And let's talk about that. I want to talk about ways to become an ally, but I believe your story about the business you created is a really good starting point. And we can talk about how I intend to be an ally and give people true examples of what that looks like. So what started this martini business? Oh, my goodness. So I'm, I'm just a lemon drop girl through and through. I really, really am. What started it was um, really, oh, excuse my computer. What started it was... Uh, a, uh, a health condition, a really serious health condition that just uh, threw my world into a tailspin. So in October of 2020, um, I had uh, a pretty good career. I was on track to uh, for promotion, to be a director. I was actually a clinic manager for vascular surgery. And uh, that's my whole background. And my background is healthcare. And um, I was doing so well. Um, you know, I, it's kind of funny when you are living your life and you're going down this particular path and you're like, oh, yeah, I think I've definitely got it. You know, I, I definitely have it figured out. And, you know, what is it that Mike Tyson quote? Everyone has a plan until you get punched in the face. <laughs> Never did I think I would, I'll be quoting Mike Tyson. But um, October 5th of 2020, I uh, was walking through my closet and all of a sudden I... I just feel this numbness on my right side. I fall to the ground. I can't speak. And I have the worst headache. It's just indescribable, to be honest with you. And I'm like, what, what's going on? So I'm there for quite a few minutes. And then I finally am able to uh, pick myself up and, and get into bed. And I asked my husband to bring me an Advil. And um, I end up going to sleep somehow. And the next day I go to work. And what made me bring it up in conversation was because I realized that I was limping when I was walking in from the parking lot. And so being in vascular surgery, you think about serendipity, right? Like 
um, I was having a meeting that very morning with my dyad partner, the medical director, and I told him about my symptoms and he was looking at me like, uh, you need to get to the ED. <laughs> what are you doing here? Um, and I'm like, what, what are you talking about? I'm 36 years old. There's no way. Like, you don't think I had a stroke. He's just like, yeah, just go check it out. So I get to the, um, I get to the emergency room and, um, they find out that my hemoglobin is at a four. And for a normal human adult, it's supposed to be at a 12. So they put me on a blood transfusion and they give me a CT scan and they say they don't see anything. And so I'm like, oh, okay. So I'm texting back and forth with uh, the doctor. And I'm like, oh, see, they don't see anything. And um, he's like, no, I'm going to page the head of neuro, tell them to give you an MRI. And it was just very interesting because initially they didn't know that I was an employee, right? And so they were dismissing my concerns. And I think that's another separate conversation about um, the uh, unfortunately unequal treatment even in healthcare, right? There are a lot of people that uh, don't um, get the benefit of the doubt you will. And I actually have another story about that uh, from my C-section with my twins. But anyway, um, and so, you know, the ER doctor was a little offended, but he went ahead with the MRI and it turned out I had had five strokes the night before. And so they immediately admit me. And that night I went unresponsive and I had four more strokes. And, you know, I just, I just kind of think about what could have happened because essentially they, I was going to be discharged, right? Um, it would have been game over. <laughs> so... Um, it, I mean, the next few days was just a flurry of craziness. Um, when I went unresponsive that night, um, they go in the cath lab and they can see uh, the clot in my brain. And so they want to go and try to remove it. And they usually go through an insertion through the groin. But as they were doing that, they saw that I had a blood clot in my uh, right carotid. And um, if they were to dislodge that, that would have really been game over. So it was uh, plan B. And I ended up being in the neuro ICU for 10 days. And it was a really tough 10 days because, again, it was during COVID. So that's 10 days away from, you know, my two one and a half year olds at the time. Right. And um, it was just eye opening because I had to really, you know, take a um a scalp, like I had to take a really good look at what I was doing with my life. And so it was funny because my neuro team, they were saying I need to take six months off of work and I negotiated it down to three. <laughs> so I'm like, no, I need to be at work. Like that can't be that like, no, that's ridiculous. Um, because at the time I was managing a staff of 60, you know, um, disciplines from all over. So PAs, NPs, nurses, all of it. Um, but that was the, uh, that was the, you know, they gave me the prognosis, that was the diagnosis, and that was the treatment, go home. Um, because, you know, just for your uh, listeners with a stroke, what essentially happens is in that area, that brain tissue dies. So I had five spots in my brain that was now, uh, uh, were gone. And so what you hope in that, in that moment is that the area surrounding that tissue can, um, can then take up for the functioning that uh, you may have um, lost. So that's why you see a lot of uh, stroke victims who probably can't walk or speak. Um, but, you know, in those three months, I had uh, physical therapy, occupational therapy, speech, you know, I had slurred speech a little bit. 
But luckily I was able to gain control back of all my faculties and, um, you know, really be grateful. But unfortunately with that, um, something that's really common with stroke victims is really deep depression. And I had acute depression, you know, it was just a blur of days and sadness, just sorrow, right? And, but somehow I managed to get through those three months um, and I go back to work and I'm there for three weeks. And one day I had a mental breakdown. Like I was just, clearly I wasn't handling what I needed to be handling. And so I just like pop up my laptop, get an emergency meeting with my therapist. And she's just like, okay, you know what? We've got to admit you. She's like, I thought like these weekly sessions were good, but um, it's time that we kind of admit you. And again, it's COVID. So it had to be virtual. So I took three more months off of work and I was in therapy. It was a program nine to five, Monday through Friday, all disciplines. So psychotherapy, psychiatry, group, music. Um, and, you know, it was it was an eye-opening experience in of itself because, uh, especially in group therapy, I was surrounded with people that were going through um, quite difficult things, right? And, you know, um, I was looking at myself and says, felt like, okay, well, for all intents and purposes, I feel like I'm living a good pretty good life. Like, why am I so sad? <laughs> and, um, you know, the marriage took a hit and it was, um, which is another random statistics that uh, 50% or is it up to a pretty high percentage of stroke victims end up going through divorce. Um, so it was, it was a dark time. It was a really, really dark time. Um, but somehow I managed to pull through with the help of medication and just support, um, like everyone dear to me, you stuck it out with me, luckily enough. Um, but, you know, to answer your question, how did I get into the martini business? It was just one day that um, my husband was going to a liquor store. And, you know, I, it's not something I'm necessarily proud of, but like I did become a little bit of a lush during this period. <laughs> so, you know, I was I was definitely enjoying a cocktail or two. And uh, he goes, I'm going to a liquor store. Do you want something um you know, to be fair, I feel like everyone was drinking during COVID, though. <laughs> so, if we're being honest. <laughs> and I was like, you know, I want a martini, but I don't know how to make it. And I'm just there staring off. I'm like, I'm going to make a ready-to-drink martini. And he's just like, okay, I'm going to go pick up some beers. Um, we'll talk later. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> And so he just leaves me in my stewing. Um, and, you know, the rest, as they say, is just quite literally history. Um, I did my homework and unbelievably here I am now. Um, and, you know, like what that re what is really turned to is quite a surprise for me because I decided in that moment, like, OK, I think that I just need to step away from my career and definitely kind of do the stay at home mom thing. And uh refocus and I just found a interesting new purpose. Um, if you take time out to read my um, brand statement, um, I just have shifted my mindset to, you know, self-love at every degree, you know, right down to your cocktail of choice. So. <laughs> a beautiful story. And for 
story. I can imagine everyone listening absolutely agrees your resilience and courage is, and your vulnerability and transparency. It's so mm. incredibly empowering. I had the opportunity to be at your launch event and hear you share your story and then, um, you know, give your accolades to everyone around you and your team and everyone that supported you. And at the end, you shocked me because I had never heard this before from a business owner. You acknowledged yourself and you acknowledge attributes about yourself that brought you to this point. And I was so pleasantly surprised and I was inspired because it's very rare. Do you hear someone really honor themselves through that journey and recognize and celebrate it? And I just think we need so much more of that in the world, Absolutely, in entrepreneurship, because Absolutely. it would be so hard on ourselves, um, so much pressure from all angles. You have bootstrapped this yourself. You own 100% of your company and your business. Um, and I am, you know, just so inspired by that. And I know so many other people are as well, but that doesn't come without challenges. As we both know, one of the reasons why I was so passionate about having a conversation with you and connecting you with partnerships that I believe could add value to your brand and your brand add value to the world is that I believe collaboration is truly the future. It's the future of helping other people who may not have those opportunities and being able to utilize your network in an impact-driven way. We've talked about that, the percentage of venture capital that goes to not only women, less than, I believe it's 2% um, or 3%, and then minority-owned businesses, even less. And so now just saying, you know, we're here, we are ready to help each other. And we both believe in an abundant mentality as women and that we can all win. There's enough room for everyone. But I also believe that some of the advantages that have been created and the type of opportunities that we can offer are how you can become an incredible ally. So let's talk about that. What are some of the ways that, you know, people that do want to help can become an ally? Right. I feel like, uh, you know, you have to get at the why. Why do you want to help, right? And I think that it's very, very important to really believe that this community, this segment of people deserve it. So something that I've been um, very um, apprehensive of are corporations that tend to greenwash, right? So they let out that very splashy press release that says, we are donating $300 million to Black-owned, woman-owned, all these owned. And then, you know, you hear, I mean, this happened to me personally. I remember I filled out the application. And I'm just like, this is so exciting. Like, I'm going to, um, you know, hopefully, whatever it may be that can come out of it. And I think that I got, it was like a computer generated no in like three hours, not saying that I'm more deserving than any, any other person, but I think that, you know, corporations, individuals that want to truly be aligned, um, it should not be about, you know, whether it be the bottom dollar or how it looks good in the press or any kind of perception. It's because you are striving to actually make things equitable from a genuine place. And it's so, so important because, you know, when that's not the reason, then you get 
you know, the, these very uh, mixed message results. And then there becomes a lack of trust. And then we are farther apart than we ever were. And so I just caution, you know, people that want to make the commitment to be aligned, to um, have it come from a place of just genuine um, belief, um, whether it's even in a friendship, uh, it, it, it needs to be real. It needs to be real. And how you um, determine when it's real is when you're not above reproach, you're able to receive uh, critical feedback, you're able to engage in conversations without being defensive. And quite frankly, you're willing to learn because, you know, it's like empathy can only go so far, right? And I say that because it is next to impossible to truly understand life through a certain lens, right? Whether it's able-bodied versus uh, uh, non-able-bodied, right? Like I'm never going to think about what it's like using scissors as somebody that's left-handed. And I'm never going to understand just that small kind of... Um, barrier. Uh, so I understand the context within being aligned can be uh, frustrating because, you know, I, I'm, I'm, a lot, I'm online a lot and I kind of see the discourse and the conversations that happen, whether it's on platforms like Twitter or TikTok where allies get frustrated. It's like, okay, I can't get everything right, right? Um, whereas the people that are asking for that alignment get frustrated, like, you know, from also a validated point of view that, well, we're trying to tell you don't be defensive. And then at the same time, it's just like, okay, maybe we should have more grace. And so it's just, it becomes about something else as opposed to what it should be about. Um, and so just the patience, the grace, um, and the, just the genuine, as cheesy as it may sound, genuine love, appreciation, and the value that you see in your neighbor, especially value. I think that's that's a huge word. Um, being able to recognize like, okay, your value equals mine, period. Uh, it's important. And that really is going to be essential moving forward. Um, but I think that don't give up either. Um, because as we both said, you, you are better for it. You know, like all, all we can all be is a work in progress. You know, you're not going to get everything right and it's okay. It's completely okay. I have it, but I don't pay attention. And all mm -hmm. is pure. Mm -hmm. And that's what keeps me going and keeps me in the conversation and Absolutely. seeking to learn and continue to learn. Let's talk about two things you mentioned that I think are important to break down with this con context. Um, you shared your experience in corporate America mm -hmm. and then in healthcare. And I think mm -hmm. those are two places that I think would be important to talk about how can we improve, you know, inclusivity and can we talk about what you've not only experienced yourself, but what you see and how we can start to bridge those gaps with right. equity and equality in those areas. Right. You hear statistics that, um, you know, doctors uh, think that black and brown patients have a higher tolerance for pain. And you hear those statistics and you hear the discourse and you're like, okay, is that real? It's not until you actually go through that that you're like, whoa, is that what this is? You know, uh, so I had a C-section with my twins. They came at exactly nine months and uh, they ended up being in the neuro ICU for about two weeks or so. So I was like there 
on the um, leather bed, you know, kind of, I'm not going home. <laughs> I'm not going home. Uh, but I believe two days bef- after the delivery, I needed more pain medication. I mean, like I just had a major surgery, right? And firstly, for whatever reason, I couldn't get it from within the hospital. I had to travel to the clinic. And then the uh, doctor that I saw was not my regular primary care doctor. And my husband was there with me. And I could not the it's actually pretty heartbreaking. The, um, the exchange just left me feeling completely hopeless. The, the way I was treated, the way I was looked at as though I was just, you know, a common, you know, and I know that there are, there are all other conversations about, um, addictions to pain medication, right? But within the context of having twins and all the things that come with everything that your body is going through, I could not believe the lack of empathy that came from that woman doctor. It was it was surreal to go through. And it was just a very, very, very obvious um, case of um, prejudice because I had to ask myself, like, okay, would this be the same story? Would this be the same exchange if I was anyone else? And I could not honestly say um, yes. And it was just really, really sad to see. Um, I don't know if she was a mother. I don't know if she could have put herself in any, you know, even if it's not my shoes, like the flip-flops next to me, like whatever it may be. Um, Like it was just, (laughs) it was just unreal. And it was very, very sad, and it made me um, more aware of just those uh, differences in treatment. And so it was then easy to recognize when I was, you know, I had just had five strokes and I was unbelieved. Um, It's very interesting because um, you get your whole packet when you have a stroke, right? And they're your discharge papers. And I remember uh, explaining my symptoms to the ER doctor at the time, and I said, you know, I I had this headache that was just out of this world. And he tells me, and I can't remember exactly the uh, phrase I used. um, And he tells me, oh, you wouldn't even get a headache with a stroke, right? And then I'm discharged. I see in the package and the, like, I think the second system was like headache out of this world. It was the exact, like, way that I just, it was the same (laughs) exact verbiage. And I'm like, okay, either that ER doc was a C student or, um, you know, he just didn't care. And I, you know, I almost hope that he was a C student, you know, because, you know, first do no harm, right? Um, and so I just feel like as you walk through your every day, it's important to just make conscientious um, decisions about what what your decision making, how that impacts somebody else. And of course, those are two very large um examples of where things can could have gone wrong right um but you know even in the minutia the little things um giving people grace benefit of the doubt it's it's essential it's so important thank you for sharing let's shift gears to entrepreneurship and everything that comes with starting (laughs) and scaling a business yeah how many times did you want to quit Oh my gosh. Um, I mean, even right now, (laughs) like even right now where, where like, you know, I'm getting 
all these amazing um, opportunities and I still have imposter syndrome. Like, this is bigger than me. Like, I mean, even when people at the launch are like, can I take a picture with you? I'm like, why? (laughs) Why? Because you have the most beautiful yellow dress that I have ever seen. Thank you. (laughs) It was just, it's just, imposter syndrome is definitely real where you're just like, am I in this moment? And, you know, people are just like, you create, there's nothing like this on the market. Like, it's just the compliments are, are, are just almost for me anyway, is almost as shocking as the, um, I like to call it the side eye, the doubts, right? Um, I, I mean, both of them just give me a ton of gratitude, but like there were definitely a lot of sleepless nights. And as you know, when you, by the time you reach launch, you are on fumes, figuratively, financially, emotionally, you know, every credit card is maxed out <laughs> and you're like, okay, I have put everything on the line and I quite literally did. At this point, I started this April 21 is when I registered the LLC. So like at this point, I'm like, okay, two years. And now I'm like giving birth to this baby. I've not earned a paycheck this whole time. I, it's just like invoice after invoice after invoice that I'm, I'm signing checks left and right. Um, and I had liquidated my entire 401k. Uh, and just because I was like, no, there's something here. Um, and so there were times where I was just like, oh, crap. Did I, did I fuck this up? <laughs> like, what have I done? What have I done? And more importantly, is anyone gonna care? Is anyone gonna like it? Like, the best part of the launch was to see people go back to the bar for another round. That was quite frankly the best part. It's just like, whew. Because at the at that time, I had, had like you know taste testers here and there, and like some industry folks that I tasted that are you know I mean not saying their their opinions don't matter. We're talking about true critics here, distributors where, you know, they have, uh, you know, uh, skin in the game, but like just to see potential consumers like love it was just, um, it was a breath of fresh, it was a huge sigh of relief. Um, so yeah, for, uh, for now at, uh, what is it? Almost three o'clock on Juneteenth. I am not quitting yet. <laughs> <laughs> Well, let's dive into the product. I had a yes. chance to try the lavender flavor. It's absolutely delicious. I shared with you that I don't drink often, but when I do, it's a good martini. So I also thought that was ironic that that yes. with us. Yeah. Uh, the name of the product and brand is Jaded AF. So let's talk about that. How did you come up with the name? So it's funny because it's definitely wordplay. So obviously my name is Alexa Fitzpatrick AF and my middle name is Jade with a Y. So it's Jaded AF, which is quite literally my name, but it's also um, the play on words. And a lot of people, there's a common misconception that Jaded means bitter when in actuality it means uh, bored, right? It means uh, lacking enthusiasm. So the wordplay there is this is a brand for people that are kind of bored of what they see on the market. (laughs) So as well as what, as well as be my name. So. (laughs) Love it. And you have lavender, lemon, cucumber flavors. I do. They're delicious. Um, so for anybody that's going to to look at this, I will provide in the show notes a link to your Instagram and other resources where they can learn how they can purchase or sample. And you also already have mini sizes to fit perfectly into hotels or other pop-up experiences that could align 
with brands that possibly have collaborative opportunities for you. So anybody listening in that is an entrepreneur, somebody that thinks like myself, who do we need to connect connect Alexa to, to be able to showcase this incredible product um, would be great. So you can absolutely reach out to her for that. And tell us how the mini bottles came to fruition. <laughs> so yeah, so my biggest thing when I actually started the brand was like, I need an alternative to wine. I think that obviously wine has just dominated the market. And then of course you have the beer and the cider and the hard seltzer. Um, I wanted uh, something, a premium cocktail experience that was easy as pulling it out of your fridge. So I knew right away that it was going to be 750 ml, so wine bottle size. And um, I just wanted women, uh, everybody to be able to say, you know what, I've had a hard day of work. Um, I want a really nice martini. And uh, I, I wanted it to be gin based. So I know that a lot of martinis here are based in vodka. But again, I uh, my love of gin is very European. <laughs> so, and I, personally speaking, I feel the juniper berries like really enhance the flavor profile. Um, and, you know, I chose those three flavors simply because they're the best. Um, lemon drop, I think I, I order no matter what I'm having, chicken, steak, fish, tacos. I'm have breakfast, I'm having a lemon drop. Um, and lavender and cucumber just became like easy, easy transitions. And so um, when I was, uh, it's funny when I think about where I started, because my plan was to like rent a sprinter van and like have cases in the back and just like drive from liquor store to liquor store <laughs> to get like taste testings. Like I, I like at that time, I, I, I was still like, it was difficult to even dare to dream of a distributor, you know, selling on my behalf. I was ready to like go case by case, store by store. But when it, you know, when we, I spent about four months on graphic design because the, the packaging had to be perfect. It had to be sexy. And then I spent about nine months on the formulation. Like, uh, so I formulated with, with a beverage director out of Louisville and um, they'll, they'll make their little potion. I told them exactly what I wanted and they'll send me samples. I'll taste and I'll critique and I'll send my feedback. And that went on for like nine months. And then we had to do the TTB approval. I had to get a co-packer that would actually blend and bottle it for me. Um, my bottles actually come from Shanghai. So it was just this kind of like learning this industry that I knew nothing about. It was quite the curve, but at the same time, how things happened was so weirdly kismet that it's really hard to deny that for me, it seemed destined. So like, I was like, okay, now it's time to take product shots. So I hired my photographer. I'm like, I'm gonna do it in the lobby of the W. And so we go to the dog. I call them like, hey, can I use your lobby? They're like, yeah, go ahead. And so we're shooting and the general manager comes down and she's looking at the bottle. She's like, oh, I heard we were having a photo shoot today. I thought it was going to be models or something. And I'm like, oh, no, it's um, my name's Alexa. This is my product. You know, and she's looking at it. She's just like, wow, would you want to be in mini bars? And I'm like, yes, yes, I would want to be in mini bars. And um, she's just like, oh, do you have this in 375ml bottles, which is half a wine bottle? And I'm like, yes, I totally do. I totally didn't. <laughs> I totally did not. And so I immediately call my um, 
my uh, bottler in Shanghai and I'm like, I need you to make me a mold of this bottle immediately because um, I have the W Hotel management here wanting to have it in their mini bars. And it just took off from there where like I then added to my strategy, like, oh, okay, this is not just a kind of drink at home or gift, uh, whether it's a host gift or a dinner party, whatever it may be. Um, this can be on the go, uh, whether it's flights or stadiums or hotel rooms. Like this is actually um, an avenue here that just came to me, you know, came across very organically. And I talk about like just random situations. And and from that, by the way, I have to give her just a big gratitude of thanks because what she ended up doing was she's like, oh, I sit on the board of the Minneapolis uh, Hotel Council and we meet every month. Do you want to come and exhibit? And so she then gave me the opportunity to present my cocktails to 29 other hotel GMs, which was just, you know, and she didn't have to do that. Uh, she uh, just embodies the concept of women supporting women and like elevating and investing in. It was just really remarkable. But I remember uh, how I had my first uh, meeting with a distributor. I was at a FedEx um, sending my samples uh, to my brother that was in Texas because uh, he hadn't tasted the product yet. And I didn't know that you had to have a liquor to send or a license to send liquor in the mail. <laughs> and so like, I'm like going back and forth and this gentleman behind me is just like, hey, I happen to have a license. Do you want me to mail it for you? Like, if you trust me, I'm like, yeah, absolutely. And he's just like, oh, I'm like, oh my gosh, how do you have a liquor license? He's like, oh, I own the wine company. And I'm like, wait, what? And the wine company is a distributor here in town. He's like, yeah, I own the wine company. And, um, you know, what's your brand? And then before you know it, I'm sitting in front of the portfolio manager and um, we're discussing distribution. And uh, during that conversation, she just happened to mention the Libation Project, which is another distributor in town. And so a few weeks later, she calls me because they're a smaller distributor. And, and so like they're very much family-owned brands and, and things like that. And she called me and she's just like, the reason we're passing is because we think this is too big. And I'm like, what? <laughs> And she's just like, this is big. Just, you know, keep me in your Rolodex as, um, you know, just another woman in the industry if you need support, advice, whatever it is. But, like, I, I've never heard a more glorious no in my life. <laughs> okay. So, like, it's so interesting because I got off the phone with her and I emailed, you know, the Libation Project, which she had mentioned at our meeting prior, and three minutes later, he responds to me. We meet a week later, and now they're my distributors. So from, like, standing in the line at FedEx, you know, embarrassed because I'm holding up the line, trying to, you know, send liquor through the mail to getting a distribution deal, it's just been, like, absolutely remarkable. It really, really has. So Exceptional. You have some yeah. pretty beautiful strengths for entrepreneurship. And to end this, I would love for you to share with everyone what you shared um, in acknowledging yourself and what parts of yourself, the strengths, the character, because that to me was one of the most powerful moments. I honestly gave myself just a little bit of honor after, after that. Go ahead. A rough season, um, more of a support role that that can be really hard. And mm -hmm. I just said, you know, you have a lot of resilience. I said that to myself, you know, and I and I wanted mm -hmm. to thank you. you. Gave me permission to just actually take a moment 
to express gratitude towards self. And I think that's really hard to do as an entrepreneur. We're always striving for, for more, even if it's more impact, we are still striving. So um, can you share with everyone to finish off this exceptional interview, yeah. um, <laughs> what you've recognized in yourself to make this uh, such an exceptional brand? Like, absolutely. Um, I just really do want to thank myself for, you know, my business acumen, my eye for design, my charisma, my courage, my uh, diligence, my tenacity, um, and even in some aspects, my delusion, right? <laughs> like, um, just, like, I want to thank myself for all of that. <laughs> oh, do I love that more than anything else? <laughs> And, and I think that we all need to, you know, thank ourselves. I, I mean, what, wherever you really are right now listening, um, you're one of one. And yeah. that is an incredible undertaking. I think that we really undervalue uh, what we bring to the table in every aspect, to our family, to motherhood, to sisterhood, uh, you know, as a, as a fireman in your community, as a neighbor. Um, you bring a lot to the table and just, you know, People cherish you, even if they don't say it. Um, and just know your strengths, know your value, and and propel. And as entrepreneurs, you know that there are sleepless nights, there are tears, there's doubt. Um, but you know, everyone has a great idea, but not everyone's you. So, yep, that's Incredible. that's my message. Thank you, my friend. I'm so grateful for you, that's and I will provide all of the links for all of you to get information on this exceptional product. Thank you so, so much.